want us to be going through detailed because this this book is so rich there's so much to it and it's it's not long it's six chapters but man it packs a punch so uh last two weeks ago we were in ephesians 1 and we're going to be in ephesians 1 again but we're going to be looking at verses 1 1 through 4 so if you have a copy of god's word open it up ephesians 1 verses 1 through 4. this is the word of the lord paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to the saints who are in ephesus and are faithful in christ jesus grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ blessed be god the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him let's pray lord how powerful how hard it is to imagine that before the world was created before anything had started you your son and the holy trinity you your son the holy spirit gathered together and came up with a plan that you would choose those whom you would save that you are the source the heart of the gospel that you would send your son to redeem us your holy spirit to anoint us and sanctify us we can only be in awe of that depth of love. And so I ask as we go through Ephesians 1, 1 through 4 today, that we would see the beauty and the power and the depth of your love towards us who are so undeserving of it. I ask that as I preach this sermon today, that the word of God would be magnified, the Son of God would be glorified, and the people of God would be edified. Amen. So in the Reformed world, which we're Presbyterian, so we're part of that world, and probably in most of evangelical Christianity, again, I was raised Pentecostal, so I definitely get to say this includes Pentecostals, we do not give enough attention to God the Father, right? We love Jesus, and God the Father wants us to love Jesus. He sent us Jesus. And we often, though, maybe not intentionally, but we focus so much on the work of Jesus or the work of the Holy Spirit that we forget God the Father. And when Jesus was on earth, who was he always talking about? God the Father. I'm here on my Father's business. When his family finds him in the temple at 12 years old and Mary's doing what every mother, you know, is going to do to her kid who scares her, like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be going back to Nazareth with us. Why, why did you run away? And his response was, I had to be about my father's business. So we know that Jesus obviously points us to the father, but we don't look to the father that much. And, and there are many outside the church who actually think that's okay. There are people who often say that, you know, they love Jesus, but not the church, or they love Jesus, but not so much Christians, or they love Jesus but they don't like that God of the Old Testament, Jesus's dad, because he's often, you know, he's violent. He's wrathful. If they're even a little bit familiar with the King James, they might say he runs around smiting people. He seems angry. 
Uh, a great Baptist preacher, Vody Bauckham, had an excellent response to this complaint, though. He said, Jesus is a member of the Godhead. He is eternally existing in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit. So, when God speaks and God acts in the Old Testament, Jesus is both there, present, and in agreement with what the Father is doing. I can, I can get a little bit the people who think that God the Father is wrathful, but, and that Jesus is all love. I can, I can understand a little bit. But I understand a lot more another complaint, another issue that some people have with calling God the Father, and that's because a lot of us have hard relationships with our earthly fathers. There's pain that's brought up that is real, not imagined, and that creates strife in relationship, and so it's hard for us to separate the title, the name, the characteristics of our earthly fathers from our heavenly fathers. There's this kind of sense that, well, my earthly father's disappointed in me, so certainly my heavenly father's going to be disappointed with me. My earthly father neglected me, so certainly my heavenly father is going to neglect me. What I want to propose today is that we must look at God the Father the way Jesus does. He is a good Father who loves us deeply. And so I, I titled the sermon, God is the Gospel, which... I took that from John Piper. He has a great devotional called God is the Gospel. It's from a different passage, but it works here, and I'm just using the title. But God is the Gospel because he searches for us, he saves us, and he secures us. So let's look at how God is the Gospel because he searches for us. Look with me again at verse 1 in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, there are two points right here that are important for us to understand and uh, have powerful implications for how we view God the Father. The first is Paul's title. He's an apostle. An apostle was one who was a witness to the resurrection and was commissioned to teach and govern the church. We immediately have a problem. Because the first apostles were those who traveled with Jesus from his baptism until they saw him resurrected and ascended into heaven. And when the disciples are trying to figure out what to do with the space left empty by Judas, they say the same thing. You know, we're going to pick a guy who's been with us from the beginning, who witnessed Jesus do the feeding of the 5,000, who witnessed Jesus uh, heal Peter's mother-in-law, who witnessed Jesus say to Lazarus, come forth and who also was there the night he was betrayed, who saw him resurrected, that's got to be one of the apostles. So why does Paul go around telling people he's an apostle? Every letter of Paul's begins that way. Is he prideful? Is he audacious? Where does he come off saying that he is an apostle? What gives him this authority? Further, what gives him this authority? Because he started off not being a friend of the church, right? Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was present at the stoning of the first martyr in church history of Stephen in Acts 7. But Paul was transformed by Jesus Christ, and his authority comes from him and God the Father. That's what he says in the beginning of Galatians 1.1. Paul writes, I am an apostle. I'm not an apostle from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ 
and God the Father. His apostleship is rooted and sourced in God the Father and Jesus Christ. And this you will remember, this powerful transformation happened on his road to Damascus where he encountered the risen Christ. And after this, he was so transformed, he went around preaching Christ crucified. And people still didn't really know who he was, but his reputation started preceding him so that Paul said that they would say, he who used to persecute us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. Finally, at the Jerusalem Council, his authority and teaching ministry among the Gentiles is recognized and fully endorsed by the apostles, particularly James, Peter, and John. And while that was important for Paul, hands down, the, the, the real authority, the real uh, commission to preach the gospel was that it came from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle is a messenger. He is a sent-out person to deliver a message. He is an inferior working on, from the command of a superior. And the message an apostle delivers, it's not his own. It belongs to the one who commissions him. And so we are told that this message, the letter Paul's about to spend all this time telling us about, and especially about who God the Father is, he is speaking what he has been commissioned to speak by the will of God. And so by God's will, Paul would travel the ancient world, planting churches, preaching, developing leaders, and lest we not forget, constantly getting in trouble. I mean, he's writing this letter from prison, but he did all of this by the will of God. And the second point of God searching for us, he sends us apostles, which we don't have today. He sends us preachers, which we do have today. He sends us elders and leaders to share the gospel with us. He empowers each of you to go out and preach the gospel as well. So he sends and searches by sending us leaders to teach us his word. The second way he is searching for us is the letter itself. Paul authored the majority of the New Testament. Charles Hodge was one of the great Princeton theologians and he said that an authority of an apostle rested first on his commission, we just covered that, but then on his inspiration. Now, I don't know a man that was more inspired than the Apostle Paul. I mean, look at the significance of his work, and, and I do mean it. If you have a Bible open, you can look down at your Bible and see you're still reading the work of some guy you've never met but whose words were inspired by Scripture and has at some point touched your heart, that sustains your faith. And how many years are we removed from when Paul actually wrote this letter? 2,000 years? More? Now, I know Marian Academy is switching to a classical education model. And this means, and I had her called out, Laura Beth, will probably have to read Greek texts uh, like Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And that was considered like the ultimate text of the Greco-Roman world was the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer wrote that work sometime around 900 BC. And the earliest copy we have is from 400 BC, which is about 400 years difference. And we have about 1,800 copies of Homer's works. The works of Plato, Aristotle, Jul Aristotle uh, Julius Caesar, were all written between 400 and 50 BC. The earliest copies we have of those are a thousand years after they were written. 
And of those, we only have 200 copies total. Like there's, there's more copies of Plato than Aristotle or Julius Caesar. They used to be the standards of education. That's what kids would read. They would study these Greek, these Greek myths and these great histories of Rome. That was what you learned. Now you have to go to schools that endeavor to be classical schools or Charlotte Mason schools, or you have to be really nerdy and want to study this stuff in college. It's not offered at your local public high school. So it's not really reaching the world the way it used to. How many copies of the New Testament do you think we have? How big of a time gap between when they were probably written and our earliest copies do you think there are? The entirety of the New Testament was written between 50 and 100 AD. And remember, Jesus died somewhere in the mid-30s. Now, the earliest manuscripts we have of whole books of the Bible come just 100 years later, between 150 and 200. A complete manuscript of the New Testament is as early as 350 AD, so that's just 200 years later. That's not bad, because if we have complete whole manuscripts, a whole New Testament, it means it, it was already circulating around enough that people decided to bind it all together. But the earliest, the earliest piece of a manuscript that we have is a small little papyri. It's about the size of a business card, and it's a copy of a portion of John 18. And it's dated to as early as AD 125. The reason that's important is most people believe that John lived the longest of any of the disciples near the end of the first century, pushing hundreds in the 100 ADs. He wrote his gospel around then because he was about to die. And then we have an early copy that was written within 25 to 30 years from the original. 25 to 30 years, we already have a piece that was probably copied from maybe even the actual copy that John commissioned or wrote. This means, or sorry, so finally, how many manuscripts of the New Testament do we have? There are 5,800 complete or little fragments like I just talked about in Greek alone. 5,800 compared to uh, what was it, Homer's measly 1800? Of that, there are 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and there are 9,300 manuscripts in Syriac, Armenian, Slavic, Ethiopic, Coptic, all ancient languages, and that is a combined total of 25,100 manuscripts. Today, we have English Bibles in multiple different versions, the New Living, the NASB, the ESV, the Great King James. The Bible has gone out to the entire speaking world. There are people who labor just to translate it into the tongues of people who still are so tribal and have such refined dialects that we need to spend lots of time learning the language and translating so they can have the Word of God, but we can do it, and we have people who want to. God loves you so much, has searched for you so long that he has preserved the entirety of his revelation so that you can have it in your hands. And now today you can have it on a phone. You can listen to it in the car. It is everywhere. God searches out for everyone he will save. The letter to the Ephesians was never meant to be only for them. It is by the will of God for us today to feed our souls, comfort our hearts, and to tell us of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
So we take these points together and we see that God the Father is searching for us. Far from being a domineering or cruel God that the unbelieving world thinks he is, we see throughout Scripture that God pursues us. He created us. King David was so blown away by the significance that God places on us that he's saying in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you make a big deal out of us, God? He doesn't neglect us, but he searches for us. He does so by sending people out into the world to announce his good news of salvation through his Son. He does it by giving us this scripture. The Book of Common Prayer that the Anglicans use throughout the world has an excellent prayer in it, thanking God for the scriptures. It says, Blessed Lord, who has caused all scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. God's given us these scriptures so that we can enter into a relationship with him and find that he's been searching for us a long time. The fact that he searches for those to save shows us that God is the gospel because he saves the ones he's searching for. That brings us to this other thing that we talked about last time, this grace and peace of Ephesians. In verse 2, that's what Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems really simple, and most of Paul's letters begin that way. And, uh, but when I was reading commentaries, it's actually really weird. It's an odd introduction style. It takes part of some of the Greek introductory uh, materials, and it takes part of some of the, the Hebrew traditions of introducing t- uh, a greeting to one another. But Frank Thielman, in his commentary, argued that those familiar with Israel's scriptures would detect an allusion to the great Aaronic blessing in Numbers. There, Aaron and his sons are told to show grace to the people of Israel and give them peace. And far from a simple greeting, it is the summary of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this phrase, Grace is the beginning of our faith, but peace is the end of our faith. I remember I said last Sunday, The book begins with grace in the introduction, and it ends with grace. So the question we ask is, how do we get it? How do we receive this grace? Well, God is the gospel because he saves us, and he saves us a certain way. He saves us through his Son. Notice how Paul is pointing out that salvation is from God, but it's in Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are also faithful in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he says, grace and peace is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we are blessed in Christ. And finally, in verse 4, we are chosen in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. The salvation that he gives us in Christ is complete. Now, if you remember uh, two, two weeks ago, we talked about the grammar of the gospel, that there's important things to pay attention to when these actions happen, these verbs. What, what tense are they in? What does it say, and why is it important? Well, it's important because in verses 3 and 4, the verbs of blessing and choosing, they're in the past. It says that God has blessed us, and God chose us. 
We are already blessed. We are already chosen in eternity's past and made complete in Christ. God the Father sent Paul to Ephesus to search for his people, to save them by preaching that they are saved by the work of Christ on the cross. And if Paul is the envoy of God and speaks on his behalf, then what Paul says of us is what God thinks of us. This means that God does not hold the past, our past, to account. He has saved us so that Paul can call the church the saints who are faithful in Christ. He has saved us completely to the point that we can be secure, that we can have assurance, is the good old Reformed word, that our salvation is secure in Christ, that we can live a life in faith in response to this wonderful act of God in Jesus Christ. And we'll look more in depth at the work of the Son in our salvation in the coming weeks. But for now, we must see that God the Father is the one doing the action of saving, but he does it in and through Jesus Christ, his Son. And so if God is the gospel because he searches for us and his will is to save us, well, then he certainly will secure all he saves in his Son. So the sermon is not about the great doctrine of election. Again, we're going to get there because we're going to go slow and detailed. But I want to discuss it briefly because it's so pivotal to Paul's thinking right here and throughout his writings. What do you think? What do you hear? What, do you, what is your gut reaction when you read verse 4? He, that's God, chose us in him. That's Christ. For many, the idea that God gets to decide who he chooses to save seems to confirm that God really must be evil and wrathful, right? When I was going to uh, get ready to leave for Covenant Seminary, and I was very much zealous about being a Presbyterian and wanted to tell everybody about Calvinism and how right I am and how wrong they are, and I, I went out for lunch with a friend, and uh, we were raised in the same church together. She was still Pentecostal, and I remember I told her uh, about, you know, just kind of the, the five points of Calvinism and, you know, that we are, we are saved and elected to salvation without having to do anything, that God chose us from eternity's past. And she looked at me, and she was just like, well, what's the point then? Like, it, does it matter then how I live or what I do? I mean, if he just chose me from, you know, eternity's past, like, what's the point of trying to do anything? I realized later through seminary, she, she wanted to know that seemed probably too good of an, op an option for her. She wanted to still be able to do something to get God to see her. She wanted to achieve something of significance so that God would say, wow, that one's doing things. I'm, I'm going to save that one. That's a good one. But that's, that's not what Paul says right here. He says he chose us. It does not say he saw what Jean was going to do at some point in her life, and then he decided to, ch to save her. He didn't say at, you know, a certain point, somebody is going to finally, you know, decide to come after me. It says that God comes after us and chooses us. And this also doesn't pit this loving Jesus versus this capricious God who picks and chooses who gets to be saved. But some people think that, right? They'll say things like, Jesus said, you know, come to me, everybody who is heavy laden. Jesus says, don't refuse little children from coming to me. They say, didn't Jesus just want everybody around him all the time? 
certainly he doesn't say something as awful as God, or as Paul says here, that God chooses who he's going to save. I mean, think of John 3.16. The problem with that type of thinking is that, in fact, Jesus repeatedly says that he is doing his Father's work. And Paul, being the envoy of God the Father, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes exactly what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit tells him to write. So, in John 15, 16 and 19, Jesus can say something that sounds an awful lot like what Paul's saying here. He says, you did not choose me. He's speaking to his disciples, but I chose you. I appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We don't choose Jesus. We certainly don't want to choose God as the Father, but God chose us in Jesus, and he's always doing this. He chose Abraham. Out of all the families of the world, he chooses one family to bless the earth with. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau, David over Saul. Saul, he chose Israel. Once they get to be a nation, he chose them out of all the other nations. There were way better, bigger, stronger, more powerful nations that God could have done a lot through. But he chose the one nation that he'd already promised to their ancestors he would save the world through. He said in Deuteronomy, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God's choice is his. It's his alone to make it, and it's not the strong he wants. It's not the the mighty. It's not going to be the people who are the achievers. It's the weak, the ones that know they are sinners, the ones who are not great to look at, that he saves, that he desires, that he searches for. So he searches for us, and he chooses to save us in his son, and he secures us. John Murray, one of the great Princeton theologians again, well, no, he went to Westminster, sorry, at Westminster Theological Seminary, said that salvation in Christ is this, those who will be saved were not even contemplated by the Father in the ultimate counsel of his predestinating love apart from union with Christ. They were chosen in Christ. This whole plan to save us and choose us was thought of by the Father and the Son. And he made this choice before the world was created, as we see in verse 4. This means that heaven was made at the beginning of the world, but election was made before. Before God said, let there be light, he said, let there be omen good, and I will save him through my Son. Before God said, let there be light, let there be Joe Barry, and I will save him through my Son. Before he said, let there be light, he said, let there be Carla, and I will save her through my son. We're a small enough church, but I'm not going to list all of you. All of you are here. I'm trusting all of you are saved. He said it of all of you. 
before light existed, your salvation was secured because God willed it in his son. So who are we to take issue with what he says? The fact that I can rejoice in my election being secure is not because I think I'm better than everyone. I know I'm not great, but I have a great God who has decided to save me. So I want to shout praises to him and sing songs of him and give my life to talk about him. But he is doing the same work in all of our lives. He is a father desperate to save those he searches for. To help illustrate it, I came across the story, and it was just the providence of God because it fits so well. It's the story of a man in China who, 24 years ago, his son was abducted right in his front lawn. The man's name was Gu Gang Tang. And as his son was abducted, he, he, they, his son was quickly sold into slavery uh, and then sold to a, a family, or at least that's what we'll find out. But he was gone. And the father would spend every waking moment he could riding his motorcycle all over China, trying to follow leads, and mostly they turned into dead ends. He broke bones from accidents. He uh, had encounters with robbers and gangs, and he went through 10 motorcycles in 24 years pursuing his son. His story was so moving that in 2015, it became a major film in China. And through the success of that film and the story of a father searching to save his son, they got a credible lead, and the son was reunited with his father and mother 24 years later. And their reunion, you can look it up, BBC was the one who reported the story, but their reunion was filmed, and, and in it you see Gao just gripping onto his son. I mean, he's sobbing. It's the son he's been looking for for almost 25 years. But you see his grip is just secure. He's, it's as if if he lets go, somebody's going to take Gao away from him, and this time, it's not going to happen. That's how hard he's gripping. That is the grip that God the Father, through Jesus Christ, has on you. Nobody has taken it away from you. When he calls us, we are hearing our soul, our souls are hearing the Father's yes he uttered before the foundation of the world. And this securing of our salvation means that we actually are secure in following after him. God the Father not only saves us from sin and hell, but he saves us so that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the end of verse 4. Paul later says that we should walk in love as Christ has loved us. Jesus said that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. I mean, you remember that from when we went through 1 John. We are constantly going back to this radical love that Christ gives us and then a call to then be holy, walk in what obedience, follow after the way of life that Jesus is showing us. And Paul says this in his letter to Timothy, that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Eugene Peterson called the Christian life a long obedience in the same direction. And our sanctification, that's the, the process of being made holy, is empowered by these spiritual blessings that he's given us. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The same God who chose us was always working this out. He spoke through his prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He said that one day we would have the law written on our hearts. 
One day we would have a new heart, a new spirit would be put in us. The new spirit is secured by God's choice of choosing us in his son, Jesus. And like Gal was gripping onto his son, we're not slipping away. The work of redemption is complete. All this is connected to something that we'll get to later in Ephesians, but it's adoption. And I'm closing with this. Adoption has always amazed me. I'm a I'm a child, a biological child. I have biological children of my own. I understand very deeply the connection created between me and my children. When I look at Ruby and Greta, I see me and them, and it's usually the frustrating parts of me. They get all the good stuff from Amanda. But the the beauty, the, the power of adoption is it's voluntary. It's the choice of strangers to love another stranger and not like mediocre shabby, pitiful love. It is deep parental love. The parents don't know their children when they meet them, but already they love them. There's this really remarkable movie called Lion. It came out a few years ago. It has Nicole Kidman, who played a real woman named Sue Brierley. She was Australian, and her and her husband adopted two young Indian boys. Uh, They both, these two young boys, both had really hard times before they were adopted. One through some mental issues. The other one had actually uh, been swept up and got so separated from his parent, uh, from his mother, that he eventually just is considered an orphan or abandoned, and he's put up for adoption. But Nicole Kidman's character and her, uh, her husband, and they love these boys, and so they adopt them. And eventually, as they grow into adulthood, the other brother is very disturbed, and he keeps running away, and he causes all this heartache on the family. And the older brother, played by Dev Patel, who's a brilliant actor, uh, he comes to the mother to comfort her, and he says to her, I am sorry you couldn't have your own kids. He apologizes that he and his brother weren't blank pages like biological children would have been. And then Sue, Nicole Kidman's character, shocks him. She says, I was able to have kids. And and Sarah, Dave Patel's character, starts immediately crying. I mean, this was too much. He for years thought he was a plan B. He for years thought that this was a pity adoption. But Sue goes on. We chose not to have kids. We wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. That's what we chose. Sue and her husband chose to rescue two children from horrible situations. They searched for them. They saved them. They secured a life for them. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Your Father in heaven searched for you. He saved you. He has secured you and will secure you until you are reunited with him in the heavenly places. Who are we to say no to such a love like that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of the gospel that you would save people who are your enemies, people who do not love you, people who do not want you, but you want 
them and sent your son to die for them, for us. Thank you that you pursue us with the Bible, with people that were believers before us, who, who themselves had been searched for and saved, and that this continues throughout our lives, both with children that we raise or nieces and nephews that we care for or friends and people that we come across. Thank you for the power of your gospel to seek and save the lost. Be with us now as we go back out into the mission field that you would equip us to tell others about this loving God who sent his son to save them and gives us a spirit to endeavor to follow after him the rest of our lives. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.